Today we're going to be talking about what I've called upside-down kingdom values. Upside-down kingdom values. Now why do I call them upside-down? I call them upside-down because the values of the kingdom of God are the exact opposite of worldly values. Why is it important for us to talk about these upside-down values of God's kingdom? Because we have a tendency, I would say a strong tendency, to follow the values of the world because they're all around us. Why is it so important for, for us to learn about kingdom values? Because if you're a believer listening to me this morning, you're part of the kingdom of God. And as we live by the kingdom principles, by kingdom values, we're going to be blessed in our lives. Now, when a person lives not by kingdom values, but by the values of the world around us, that's exactly what the Bible calls sin. And when we sin, we do not have the blessing of God in our life, yet we also have the negative consequences of our sin to deal with. And so God desires for every person to be blessed, and he desires for us to spread his blessing the blessings of the kingdom to others. The kingdom was a, an important part of Jesus' message. Luke 4, 43, Jesus said, I must preach the, what? the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And when a person becomes a follower or a believer in Jesus, they enter into and become part of God's kingdom. But once you become a part of God's kingdom, once you become a follower of Jesus, you do not automatically live by kingdom values. It's, it's not something that's automatic. Jesus told us in the well-known verse, Matthew 28, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now this is the point I want us to listen to or the phrase teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus tells us as believers to go out and make disciples or make new believers of the people around us to be his witnesses. And once someone becomes a believer, they are to be baptized in water. Is that the end of the story? Oftentimes we think that's it. We've done our job. But no, he says, we are to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And what has Jesus commanded us? Oh, well, he's taught us about kingdom values. He's taught us how we should live as part of the kingdom. And how can we do that? Well, this phrase, in what's often called the Great Commission, has two components. First of all, a believer must be taught or he must learn what God's word says about kingdom values. If you don't know it, it be very hard to live it. And secondly, it's not enough just to know what we're supposed to do. How many know in your own life that just knowing what you're supposed to do does not always translate it into doing what you're supposed to do? So not only do we have to know what we're supposed to do, how we're to live by kingdom values, we have to put it into practice. We have to observe as it says, which really means obey what Jesus commands us to do. And so, that is when God's blessing is released into our lives. As we 
know what God's kingdom requires of us and as we follow it. Now today we're going to see Jesus' disciples failing in multiple ways to follow kingdom values. And I think the reason that they had so much trouble as they had a natural tendency to follow not kingdom values, but worldly values. And so, as we go through this story, I can identify with those disciples. Sometimes we think they're such high and mighty, they were perfect people, but they were certainly not. I can identify with them. And Jesus was patient with them. And he helped them and he taught them to work through the values Change the values of their heart from worldly values to having kingdom values. And the more we live by kingdom values, the more blessing we're going to have in our lives, the more power of God we're going to have in our lives. And as we have that, we can advance his kingdom. We are blessed not just to be blessed, we are blessed to be a blessing to others. So let's look at the first principle we're going to learn today is that faith releases, should be releases, kingdom power. Faith releases kingdom power. Our story begins in Luke chapter 9, verse 38. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and hardly leaves him and will hardly leave him. So here we have a sad case of a young boy, the only child of a father who has been oppressed by demons. From time to time, this evil spirit possesses this boy, causes him to scream, to foam at the mouth, to go into convulsions. The father knew that this behavior was not due to some disease. It was due to an evil spirit, an unclean spirit. And so he came to Jesus' disciples and and asked him to help him. He didn't know what to do. This type of thing cannot be cured by a doctor. It needed a spiritual intervention. Verse 40. And I begged your disciples to cast it out. To cast this demon out. But they could not. Jesus answered. O faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you. And bear with you. Bring your son here. So earlier in Luke chapter 9, we learned how Jesus gave power and authority to these same disciples to cast out demons. And they had been successful. Yet now these same disciples were unable to cast this demon out. They were unable to help this boy. They were unable to bring any healing. Jesus just arrived on the scene. He'd been up on the mountain praying came down, and here was his father begging Jesus for help. How did Jesus respond? Well, he began by saying, Oh, faithless and twisted generation. Now, the question is, who was he talking to? I don't believe he was talking to the father. The father was just seeking help. I certainly don't believe he was talking to the boy. The boy was in trouble. He didn't know what to do. I believe he was addressing his disciples who had failed <clears throat> to cast out this spirit. 
We read more of the details of this failure of the disciples in this case in the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark. And in those two accounts, Jesus attributes their failure to two things. First of all, lack of faith, which we see repeated here, and secondly, lack of prayer. They should have been able to cast that demon out, but their lack of faith caused them to fail. So what did Jesus do? It says, while he was coming, the father and the boy, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So as his father brought the boy to Jesus, the demon, the demon acted out again, began to manifest again, throwing this boy into convulsions. I'm sure he was laying on the ground and thrashing around, trying to, the demon was trying to say, you can't do anything to me, but Jesus simply spoke, rebuked the demon, and commanded it to come out, and it did, and the boy was restored, he was healed, and everybody around was amazed. Amazed because the disciples couldn't do anything, I'm sure that when the disciples spoke to the boy, he'd just lay around thrashing, and nothing happened, but when Jesus spoke, there was instant deliverance. It requires faith to release kingdom power. And so the first takeaway, I believe, that we can learn from this story is that even Jesus' disciples failed at doing miracles. Oftentimes we put them on too high a pedestal. And they were not Jesus. They were ordinary people just like you and me, called by God, uh, certainly heroes of the faith, but they were certainly not perfect. So don't be discouraged if you pray for someone and they're not instantly healed. Don't be discouraged if you come up with a situation and you pray and don't immediately see the answer to the prayer. We need to learn from the things that Jesus pointed out, what was the cause of the disciples' failure? It was a lack of prayer and a lack of faith. And those are two things that we can grow in in our own lives. You see, faith and prayer are intimately related or connected. If you don't pray much, what does that mean? It means you don't have much faith. If you have a lot of faith, you're going to pray a lot. You see, it takes faith to pray. If I don't really believe God hears my prayers, if I don't believe that my prayer is going to make any difference, that's not much faith, is it? So I'm not going to pray much. But if we have great faith in a wonder-working God who answers prayers, we're going to pray more and more. The more you pray, the more faith that you're going to have. And the more faith you have, the more you're going to pray. The prayer that Jesus was talking about was not simply prayer over the boy, I believe, at the time. The prayer the disciples lacked was their prayer time in the rest of their lives that would have prepared them to bring healing and deliverance to the boy. You might say, well, Pastor Dan, how much should we pray? Well, the Bible doesn't say. But it does say, pray continually. Pray without ceasing. So I believe that's our mark. 
Now, no, we don't have to be on our knees 24 hours a day. We have to sleep. We have to eat. We have to go to work. We have to take care of our families. But we can pray and be in communion with God and conversation with God all through the day. And that should be each of our goals. The more that we pray, the more faith we're going to have. The more faith we have, the more we're going to pray to release God's power and blessing to those around us. Second principle we're going to learn today is to embrace kingdom humility. Verse 44. This is Jesus speaking. Let these words sink into your ears. He's speaking to the disciples again. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. So Jesus was beginning to tell his disciples now what was going to happen to him. They knew he was the Messiah. But what was going to happen to Jesus was not what they thought the Messiah was going to do. But Jesus said, I'm going to be arrested. And that arrest would ultimately lead to his crucifixion. Disciples thought, well, that doesn't sound like a good thing. And so they really didn't want to know any more about it because it didn't fit with their idea of what Jesus was going to accomplish. They really wanted Jesus to overthrow the Romans, to lead a revolution, and set Israel free. That's what they thought the Messiah was going to do, but that was not what Jesus was going to do. And so they were afraid to ask Jesus what his sayings really meant. And then... Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. These are the disciples. I wonder who started that argument. Mike says Peter. Pretty good guess. We don't know. Uh, poor Peter. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And so now here we have these, I'll call them the bumbling disciples today. They had just failed to cast this demon out of the boy, and Jesus had done it effortlessly, as it seemed. And then they began to argue among themselves. Well, arguing is not a great thing, is it? But what were they arguing about? They were not arguing about a sports store, a score or what the best team of whatever they did back then was. They were arguing about which one of them was the greatest. The greatest of all time, I guess they had back there. Which, which of these disciples is going to be the greatest of all time? The greatest disciple. Now Jesus was going to teach these disciples another lesson. And so he brings a child and puts it next to him. He uses this child as an object lesson. And he says in verse 48, And whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So why did Jesus draw the attention of the disciples to this child at the time that they were arguing among themselves who is the greatest? How would they have perceived this child? They didn't believe this child was in the running for being the greatest, did they? A child was considered least. Why was this child even here? We read other accounts that they wondered why Jesus was spending so much time with children. You need to spend time with adults. 
like themselves. And so they would have perceived, the disciples would have perceived this child as the least important person there. And yet Jesus is instructing those disciples the importance of receiving the least among them. Of giving priority to the needs and desires of those they wouldn't consider great. Those perhaps that didn't have that much to contribute, or at least it seemed that way at the time. And Jesus is saying when one receives a child, when one welcomes a child, when one gives priority to a child, it's as if you are receiving Jesus, welcoming Jesus. Because in a child, even in the least of those, we can see God at work. We can see Jesus at work. And Jesus concludes his comments here with this saying, the one who is least among you all is the one who is great. A true disciple of Jesus who is living by kingdom values is not the one who considers himself the greatest. It's the one who serves all the rest. The one who considers himself the least. A true disciple is humble. He sees God at work, and he welcomes those who are least, those who he would not consider to be great. And so we must learn from Jesus about embracing kingdom humility. That is one of the values of the kingdom. So we are seeing a second failure here of the disciples, arguing about who is the greatest. And so what can we learn? Well, we can learn the same lesson ourselves. We are not to seek to be the greatest. As a disciple, we are not to seek to be the greatest. Not, it doesn't mean we don't seek to excel in what God has given us to do. But to seek to be the greatest is, is to seek to elevate yourself over other people rather than serving other people. When you consider yourself the least, that you're going to serve other people. You're going to do better as a disciple of Jesus. You're going to do better as a member of your family. You're going to do better at your work. The desire to be seen as great in the eyes of others is a symptom of pride. You want to be seen as great by other people. Rather than that, we're to cultivate an attitude of seeing worth in other people. Considering ourselves, considering others, in fact, the Apostle Paul considered others as more important than yourself. What's the natural tendency? The worldly tendency. I am the most important. And so Jesus uses a child as an illustration of someone who is least in the eyes of others. So today, who is the least in the eyes of our culture? It's again a child. In fact, it's an unborn child in its mother's womb. It's seen as the very least in the eyes of people. For half or more of the country, the unborn child is not even worth saving. It's not even a human being for many until it's born. 
as believers, we must speak up for those who are least. We must value them. We must speak up for those unborn babies who, whom God has brought to life. And as we each do what we can to show the value for these unborn children, God will bless us. He will show us ways to help the mothers who don't see how they can possibly bring a child into the world and support it. And so our goal is not just to outlaw abortion, which would be fine, would be good, but to make it unthinkable. That there, anytime a mother has an unplanned pregnancy, there are ways that she can be helped to bring that child into the world and placed into a loving home or helping her be the best mother in the world for that child. And we do that already through helping uh, thrive. We just had a baby shower here and to help the moms, to give them the help and support they need to bring that child into the world and raise it in a godly home. Those who care for the least are those who are the greatest. Finally, we are to practice kingdom, what I call cooperation. Verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So one of the disciples, John, was observing that others were beginning to do the same thing that Jesus was, and now his disciples were doing, casting out demons. Now, in fact, this person, whoever it was, they didn't know this person, was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And he was not one of the twelve. He was not following along with them. And I'm reading into this that this person was having some success. He was casting demons out in Jesus' name. Now, the disciples thought that they had a monopoly on this demon-casting-out franchise. And this other guy hadn't signed up. And so they said, this is not permitted. We're the only ones, you know, the only exorcists that can do this work. Uh, just us and Jesus. They tried to stop him. And they told Jesus, it seems like they were rather proud of this. Hey, we saw somebody doing this and he wasn't part of our gang here. And we said, stop it. Because we're the special ones. I think this is another symptom of this pride greatness uh, quality that they were fighting against. But Jesus wasn't very impressed with what they were doing, was he? He told them, he told them do not stop him. You guys stop trying to stop this other guy. Why? Because this person is doing what we're doing. This person is doing damage to the kingdom of the domain of Satan. He's setting people free. He's on the same team as us. Even though he's not following right behind me. Somehow this person had learned from Jesus and his disciples by watching them or hearing stories and was helping them defeat their common enemy, Satan. So again, Jesus corrects his bumbling disciples. 
Doesn't end here, verse 52. And he, that's Jesus, sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. So the Samaritans were a group of people. They did not worship at Jerusalem. They worshiped God in their own way. And they had some different beliefs than the Jews. And Jesus was sending messengers ahead to this Samaritan village that he was planning to visit to make preparations for him and his disciples and others to stay there, I assume, to get food and whatever had to be prepared. And the Samaritan village or the people there said basically, no, you can't come here. We're not going to receive you. There's no place to stay. We're not going to feed you. Uh, no, just go away. Go to Jerusalem. Uh, we are not into people going to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. So what was the response of Jesus' disciples? And when, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked the devil in them. No, rebuked them. So the disciples, they didn't have enough faith to cast a demon out of this boy, but now they were believing God was going to send fire down and incinerate this entire village uh, because they had not received them and Jesus. What did Jesus do? He rebuked them. I mean, basically the same word that he used to rebuke demons. He said, you are not operating by the Spirit of God. Uh, this, is not, uh, <clears throat> this is not right. You don't have a good attitude in your hearts. In fact, Jesus had expressly told these same disciples, if you recall, what to do if they were not received in a town. What were they to do? Send fire down from heaven? No. Shake the dust off their sandals and move on to the next village. Letting God deal with any type of judgment that would be brought against people who did not receive, receive the gospel. Uh, they had forgotten instructions and they were to leave the judgment to God and continue to pray that people's hearts would be changed. Practicing. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about this practicing kingdom cooperation. So here we see some more of the disciples' bad attitudes towards those who are not in their inner circle or who did not did not receive their message. And so we need to learn from their failures for our own lives as well. There are many types of followers of Jesus in the world. Uh, and, and also there are many people who call themselves Christians who are not. So there's all kinds in the world. But many types of true Christians, some are of... Great maturity, some of our are of lesser maturity. Some are in organizations that really don't understand all of God's word correctly, that just have part of it. Others have a more fuller understanding. But as believers, we must be of the attitude to cooperate with all believers, whether they're new believers, whether they're uninformed believers, whether they're more mature believers. We need to be able to cooperate with all of them. I believe we must also cooperate even with those who are not believers, but who are 
seeking to advance kingdom principles. And you think, how, could, how is that possible? How could someone who's not a believer advance kingdom principles? Well, I believe it's possible for people to follow some biblical principles in some areas of their lives and not be saved. It's just, God's word has a lot of principles that are simply the way the world works. And if you follow those principles in some ways, you are going to be blessed. And so, in different aspects, we cooperate uh, with other people to bring about positive changes in our society, in our country, in our world. It's okay to cooperate with people who are not believers to bring about positive things, kingdom values, in our country, in our state, in our city. For those who will not receive our message as believers, we are to, as Jesus said, move on. Sometimes you don't want to you don't want to be obnoxious as a witness for Jesus. If somebody doesn't receive it, if they're not ready to receive it, don't keep pounding them with it. Okay, back off. Continue to pray for them. I'm not saying give up on the person, but continue to pray and trust God that their hearts will be softened and they'll have an opportunity to receive in the future. But move on. Move on. Instead of calling down fire from heaven. So we are to practice kingdom cooperation in the spirit of love and acceptance of others. And so today we've seen the disciples as what I would say very fallible human beings. People that we can relate to. Now, these are not brand new disciples. We're halfway through the Gospel of Luke already. They'd walked with Jesus quite a ways. But they still were having some issues with their worldly values. The trust that's given you hope. That as a follower of Jesus, we don't have to be perfect. And when we goof up, did Jesus say, oh, you're off my team? Uh, he didn't do that. He said, okay, let's get our attitudes right. Don't do this, but let's follow this way. Why did the disciples have such a rough time? Well, they were reacting to things that were coming along based on worldly values. The worldly values they had grown up with. The worldly values that the world around them had. And it's easy for us to fall into that same trap as well. The kingdom values, I call, are upside down from worldly values. Oftentimes the things we instantly tend to react with are the wrong things. And God wants us to think before we react to follow kingdom principles. Jesus taught us today about the importance of kingdom faith. Kingdom faith, which is grown through prayer. As our prayer life increases, our faith will increase. As our faith increases, our prayer life will increase. We learn the importance of embracing kingdom humility, paying attention to the least among us. And finally, God desires us to practice kingdom cooperation, working with those who seek to promote kingdom values and kingdom principles around us. So my prayer is that each of us would continue to grow. To grow in learning and observing, putting into practice the principles of the kingdom of God. 
Now, to become a believer, to become a follower of Jesus, uh, it takes a decision on each and every person's part. No one is born a believer. No one uh, just falls into becoming a believer. It isn't something, it's something you have to make a decision. And the first aspect of this decision to become a follower of Jesus is to repent, to turn away from your sin. That's the first thing that John the Baptist, that Jesus, that Peter, the first words that people are called to do is to repent, to turn away from their sin. Secondly, you need to believe in Jesus. Not simply to believe in God in general, but to believe in a man who lived 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, ask him to forgive your sins, believe that he rose from the dead, and commit your life to follow his leadership. So let's bow our heads right now, and I'd encourage you to pray with me if you've never committed your life to Christ before, or if you'd like to recommit your life to him this morning as well. Father, today we thank you for who Jesus is. I choose to repent from my sin, from living my life in my own way. I turn away from that sin. And I believe in Jesus. I trust him with my life. I invite him into my life to forgive my sins. I believe he died on the cross that my sins might be forgiven and he rose from the dead. He's alive today. And I commit, I submit my life to him as my Lord and Savior. Today, let's pray that the principles that we've heard, that we've learned this morning, might be expressed and lived out in our lives. Father, we thank you for the principles of the kingdom of God that Jesus taught, that the Bible teaches us. And we pray that we would increasingly, as believers, live by those principles. We thank you for the power of kingdom faith, that faith is, faith is so important. We pray that you'd give us faith to believe your word. We pray that we would grow in prayer so that our faith would grow. And as our faith grows, that we would pray more. Help us to pray without ceasing, to learn what that means, to be in an attitude of constant communication with you. Help us to be humble in our every aspect of our lives, to consider the least, to consider others as more important than us, God. And not be thinking about our own greatness. We know that you resist the proud and you give grace to the humble. We need your grace in our lives. Help us to cooperate with others, even those who are different from us, even those who don't believe everything exactly like us. God, help us to find ways to cooperate to advance your kingdom in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name. We're going to have a uh, time of healing prayer as we do close of each service. Our scripture today is from Numbers 21. The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses, Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. 
There were serpents that were biting the people, venomous serpents, snakes. The people were dying, and this was the way God brought healing. They were to look at this bronze serpent with faith on this pole, and when they did, they were healed. And that is a picture, that bronze serpent on a pole is a picture of Jesus on the cross. And that's how our healing happens today. We have to look to him when we need healing of any kind in our lives, whether it's physical healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing, we look to Him, and that is where our healing comes from. So we're going to pray today for healing of whatever kind that you may need in your life or someone close to you may need. So I'd encourage you to picture that need in your mind. I'm going to raise my hands to heaven and just call on God that way. If you'd like to join me, I'd encourage you to do that as just a way that we reach out to God as we pray. So if you have a need that you're reaching out to God this morning, I'd encourage you to join with me in prayer. Father, today we thank you that you're a God who heals. You're a God who healed in the Old Testament, you healed in the New Testament, and you heal today. You're going to continue to heal until Jesus comes again. And so we pray, God, that as we look to you on the cross, your word says, by your stripes we are healed. We pray that you'd bring healing to every person here who needs your healing touch. We pray that you'd bring physical healing. We pray that you'd bring emotional healing. We pray that you'd bring spiritual healing in every area of the lives of people here, the lives of people listening to us online, the lives of people that we hold dear, the lives of people that we are lifting up in prayer today as we pray. We thank you for your healing touch. We thank you for the people you've healed in the past and those that you are healing and those that you're going to heal in the future. We thank you that you are a God who heals, who cares about us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.